pastries in Paris, cookies in Pittsburgh, and fried dough in Madrid. This week, it's all about sweets. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This week, we're exploring the sweet stuff in all its glorious forms. Cakes, cookies, pastries, donuts, and frozen treats, too. And we'll try each of these in different places all over the world. But first, if you could, subscribe to the show. Destination Eat Drink delivers a new show every Friday. And if you're a subscriber, it'll land right on your phone, tablet, or computer automatically. We're on all the podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and they just announced we're on Amazon. Go to music.amazon.com slash podcasts. I got to say, I, I hate their interface and I hate the way that their design looks on the page. But hey, if you're an Amazon person and that's how you want to get your podcast, that's you. I can't control your life. Destination. Eat, drink. My buddy Constantine is a food tour guide in Greece, and he told me about a sweet treat in Athens that's not baklava. Lactoburico. Uh, many people mistakenly think that this is the Greek take on the Ottoman sweets like baklava, but uh, this um, item is only Greek. Like baklava comes with many thin layers of filoto, lots of syrup, but they replace the nuts with a custard made of semolina. Semolina is a durum wheat, the wheat people use to make pasta, mixed with milk, eggs, vanilla, and uh, some fat, which can be butter. And it's the most flavorful Greek sweet anyone can have. It's a very, very well-balanced sweet for its kind. As the custard, it's not sweet by itself. It's going to be sweetened when they pour the syrup on the item right off the oven. Uh, another great sweet everybody should have is glica um, to kutalu. Uh, that translates into spoon sweets. Uh, this is uh, peels of fruit, unripe fruit, or sometimes vegetables or flowers like rose petals or small unripe eggplants that have turned into a candy. They take the item, do it many boilings in water and sugar, and uh, they do it low temperature and a uh, long time. So this way, the item won't fall apart to turn into a marmalade. It keeps its shape and it becomes a candy. And uh, these sweets are connected to Greek hospitality uh, because back in the times, someone visiting a relative, first and most of all, they will be treated these sweets in a small plate to enjoy with a teaspoon and water on the side. And uh, many people can replace the yogurt, uh, the uh, honey on the Greek yogurt with these sweets chopped. Especially the rose petals is a great one. And uh, I would tell people to not be afraid to taste that as it won't taste like dove soap granny perfume, or talc powder. 
New Zealand and Australia fight over who originated a cake called pavlova, but it turns out neither can lay claim to the pavlova crown, as I talked about in my episode from Auckland, New Zealand. There is a famous dessert in New Zealand called the uh, pavlova. Uh, Pavlova is kind of a meringue with fruit on top, except they add cornstarch to the uh, egg whites. And it, when, it, when you make it, it gets kind of a crispy outer shell with kind of a marshmallow-like inside, which is a little different from the meringue. It's absolutely fantastic, and lots of places in Auckland serve the pavlova. The history of the pavlova is also really interesting. The legend is that there was this famous Russian ballerina. Her name was Anna Pavlova, and she was touring New Zealand in 1926. And a chef at a hotel made the famous dessert what he called the pavlova, in her honor. But hold on one second. Uh, It's not as easy as that. The Australians also claim that they invented the dessert called the pavlova earlier that same year. And for years and years, even to this day, the Australians and the New Zealanders, they go back and forth about who can claim the invention of this dessert. So a couple of food researchers came by, one Australian, one New Zealander, And they determined that the pavlova was actually of American origin. It started as a German tort and uh, moved to America. And that's where it really became what is now known as the pavlova. It doesn't matter who you believe because it's equally delicious no matter where you go. And whipping up egg whites to a stiff peak doesn't seem like something that one single person could possibly invent. But it doesn't really matter where the pavlova actually came from. It's delicious no matter where you get it. And the traditional pavlova is available just about anywhere in Auckland and in New Zealand. But the real interesting pavlovas are the ones where they've kind of taken a twist of the traditional and added in something modern or different or interesting. And in Auckland, Chibo makes a wonderful pavlova. It's a little pricey, 14 bucks US, but they do three different kinds of pavlova and this one is incredible. It's a peanut brittle pavlova with salted caramel. Oh, unbelievable. And Euro, which is right on the waterfront in Auckland, so you're dining right on the harbor, they make a great pavlova too. Theirs they top with sorbet. Lizzie Collingham is a food scholar, and she talks about the history of cookies, or what they're called in the UK, biscuits. So it's about how the biscuit becomes, because biscuits start as um, bourgeois things, really. They're eaten by, uh, well, in fact, they they start, uh, sugary biscuits, that is, start as part of a banquet. So in the 17th century, you might eat biscuits at the end of a meal, which would and they would have they're not like biscuits that we think of like cookies at all. They would have coriander and aniseed in them and they were eaten as kind of digestives to to settle the stomach uh, uh, at the end of a meal, which is why I guess they're still called digestives. So. so that's how biscuits come in, and it's all about how they t- they transform from being this kind of bourgeois 
elite food into becoming something which is democratic and eaten by everybody, including uh, the working classes. And that doesn't really happen until after the Second World War. So that's what that book is about. And and um, I'm considering changing it and telling it uh, for America a little bit with the, where I talk about the cookies and stuff, but I haven't, I haven't sold that yet. So I don't know whether I'll write that, but <laughs> in Madrid, everybody knows about churros, but Lauren Alois from devour tours talks about another great fried treat to enjoy with your chocolate when you're in Madrid. And porras is what I call churros fat cousins. Um, they are <laughs> a lot bigger and chewier than the thin churros that you'll, you'll find here in Spain. Um, and the reason for that is they also include baking soda as an ingredient. So it kind of just expands them and they fry them in the oil and they're much more of like a chewy donut texture than a, than a crispy wand <laughs> that, that the churro is. Uh, and, and they're delicious. Uh, I prefer them to churros, although both can and are delicious if, if made fresh, but they're eaten usually for breakfast, sometimes as an afternoon snack. The, the common misconception is that you'd have churros for dessert, and that is never, does not happen. And, and a lot of people eat these things plain. They don't actually always have them with the chocolate. That's more for children. They don't always have them covered in sugar. They never see cinnamon in their lives. That is a Mexican adaptation of the churro. Um, so these are, they're kind of... Uh, a, a snack that people would have to fill them up in the mornings while before they might go to a long day in the fields or, or working a, a long laborious day back in back in time uh and they were stick to your ribs fried dough i like them with sugar personally but but yeah they're they're, they're pretty delicious i'd recommend you try them my friend Marco from Niche Italy Tour Company tells the amazing story of a former nun who makes some of the best pastries in far western Sicily. One of the most important things of Erice is Maria Grammatico. I don't know if you heard about Maria, but uh, talking about convent and the pastry, so she's the live example of this. Uh, so she grew up, you know, uh, first of all, you need to know that in Sicily, when they were like a huge family, like uh, 12 siblings, um, like the, the guys were usually going uh, to the military and uh, and the, the girls uh, were uh, get married or going to the convent. Uh, so she was the one that went to the convent. Uh, but uh, she was able to stay only 15 years in the convent and then uh, go out. And then she learned how to make the best pastries, uh, including obviously Pasta Martorana. And she opened in 1963 in Erice her own uh, pastry shop, stealing the recipe from the convent. So she was kind of <laughs> discommunicated by the church. <laughs> they were so mad of her. Persona but non guess, grata for taking the uh, recipe. Uh, 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 yes, but uh, still now, so this place has never changed. And uh, uh, usually with the, with my people we go there in the from the back uh, from the backyard and with Maria we st we go in her table and uh, we we help her to make the the pastry the almond oh. pastry the Genovese which is a, a kind of a, a is a vanilla custard pastry the warm vanilla they just cook in the oven for four minutes and then you eat it very warm it's a, it's it's a, it's oh. a physi physical and mental pleasure I always say the people sit down relax. And enjoy the pastry because <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a mystic moment. <laughs> Jess Timmons does food tours in her adopted hometown of Paris. 
She tells us about some amazing pastries in the City of Light. The croissant has, an, uh, in my eyes, superior older sister. It's the pain au chocolat, so it's just the croissant with the chocolate in it, which, you know, I always yes. get as, as opposed to the croissant, I think. In French, we have a, we have a distinction. So the croissant and the pain au chocolat, these are viennoiseries. And then the tarte au citron, so the lemon meringue tart and the eclair, these are pâtisserie. So I don't think we have this distinction in English, actually. No, I don't think so. No, but in French, there are more distinctions for more different types of food than you can imagine. So, um, As there should be. Yes, definitely. So when we're talking croissant, etc., that for me is a very different category for when we're talking eclair. So when we're talking about the eclair kind of section, which I think we are. Yes. Yeah. Um, I would always go for, if it's on offer, something called the Paris-Brest. Paris-Brest is um, it's a race, actually, that takes place once a year. It's a bike race. And they've honored this bike race with making a circular wheel-shaped gâteau, which has uh, two layers of choux pastry held together with a kind of hazelnut cream and is garnished with a ton of hazelnuts on top. That's always a winner, friend, I'll be honest. Um, then you also have one of my absolute favorites is called the Prix d'Amour, meaning the well of love. And so that is basically a creme brulee encased in short crust pastry. Oh my. Yeah, it's a good one. It's an impressive one. That one... If you're going to get it, you have to go to Storer, which is the oldest pastry shop in Paris. Um, that's spelled S-T-O-H-R-E-R. And he is the inventor of this little cake. So that, that pastry shop's been there since the 1730s. And that's where you're going to get the best one. Sylvia McCoy of Berg Bits and Bites loves her city of Pittsburgh. And she talks about a famous food custom in Pittsburgh that originally came from Croatian immigrants. So um, our wedding cookie tables, if you go to a wedding, you are going to see a beautiful wedding cake, of course, but you're also going to see a large table covered in cookies. And at the end, there is going to be a box where you can put your cookies into and take with you on your way home. Now, people always come in and they're especially people that are not familiar with our wedding cookie tables, and they're just completely surprised. Why do we have all of these cookies? Uh, it originated, again, from the immigrants that came into Pittsburgh. From the research that we've done, it's uh, primarily the Croatian. We had a very, oh. very, and we have a large Croatian I would have population. guessed the, the Italians, but the Croatians, very good. Yes, yes. It's attributed to the Croatians that the Croatians are the ones that brought this tradition over with them, that Again, when they came over here as immigrants, they didn't have a lot of money, right? So they couldn't have elaborate weddings, elaborate cakes, and so on. But they did have family, and the family would come together, and they would bake. And so they would bake, bake, bake for days, make these cookies, and that's what would be served at the weddings. So since then, that has then been a tradition that's been adopted by everyone. You can be Polish, you can be Italian, you can be Irish. You have that at your wedding, and it's still... So many people, if they know that a family member is going to be married, they start baking weeks ahead, freeze them, and then bring them out. Uh, there was recently a, uh, we recently were in the Guinness Book of World Records for the largest cookie table. And I, I don't want to give the wrong number there in terms of how many cookies, but it was 
thousands and thousands and thousands of cookies. So we're now in the Guinness Book of World Records for the largest wedding cookie table. I love this idea. And, you know, I it might be heresy, but I think I would prefer a cookie at a wedding rather than a piece of wedding cake. <laughs> I prefer both, so it's all good. You could have, yeah. You, so, do they serve it like a, a slice of cake in the middle, and then you surround it with cookies when you get your plate? Or it must be very uh, interesting how you get all those things together on one plate. Right. Well, so really, we're very traditional still that you still just get your cookies um, separately from the cake. The cake is served to you on your plate, and um, and then again the cookies. There's a box or some sort of receptacle that you can put your cookies into and take with you. Oh, you get to take them with. Exactly. Oh, even better. So you get to enjoy them over a period of time. You don't have to stuff your face with cookies because the party's almost over. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I love this idea. I'm going to come to Pittsburgh for a wedding. Um, Oh, good. One one last pastry I want to ask you about, Sylvia, is the mele, M-E-L-E. I'm not familiar with this. Tell me about this. So uh, the melee, which we get on our strip district tour, is from Colangelo's. And there's some history, of course, behind that as well. So Antonio Branduzzi, he came over here from Lucca, Italy, and he brought his recipes with them. Among them was this melee, which is essentially a puff pastry, and it's filled with fruit or an almond paste. It is to die for. It is one of the favorite tastings on our strip district tour. But uh, apparently what happened was Antonio Branduzzi, where he comes from, they are filled with apple and custard is kind of the original recipe. But here in the States, you can't have a melee with custard in it and not have it refrigerated. So he adapted the recipe and put just fruit or, again, that almond paste in there. Uh, When he passed away, his wife contacted the current owners of Colangelo's, Denise and Nick, and said, hey, would you like to carry on with my husband's uh, legacy, they said yes. They stepped up, and um, now we still have Antonio's uh, recipe in the melees. And Denise and Nick have added on a lot of other recipes, so it's it's really become a favorite go-to location. Again, it's one of kind of those hidden treasures in the strip district off the the main path, and um, a smaller store on the side, on a side street. But once you know it's there, you're going to go back again and again and again. Portland, Oregon is a great foodie city. And Angie Johnson of Eat Adventures Food Tours tells us about donuts in the city of Portland. Somehow, out of nowhere, Portland became known as a donut city, which was unexpected but very cool. It really did start with Doozy Donuts and then it expanded from there. Um, a lot of people say that if you want, you know, a really good quality donut or an adult donut, go to Blue Star. They've got a lot of locations around town and some really amazing donuts. Um, they try to do local flavors and change up their flavors. Tips Original, they make small mini donuts uh, made to order. Um, one of the donut spots that we actually feature on one of our tours is Nola Donuts, and they have a fantastic story. It's family-owned. It's three siblings. Um, they come from New Orleans, and they actually make a donut that is a little unique. It's um, a laminated donut dough, so done in layers, and then made into a donut. Oh. And they call it the La Sant. So it's, it's a donut dough made in a croissant way, where like a cronut is a cronut dough made at the donut. Right. So it's a little different, um, but they've got a couple locations. I mean, really, you could have a whole podcast just on Portland Donuts, I think. 
My friend Esther Vida of You, Me, and Sicily lives in Catania, and she talks about the wonderful frozen treats of Sicily called granita. Okay, so in granita, you would call it something like Italian ice or slush. Right, or Let me slush. tell you, yeah. it is nothing like it. It is nothing like it. It is an ancient sweet uh, first brought here by the Arabs, and it's shaved ice, but they have a certain way, a, a chemistry, uh, and the, I don't know, the speed of how they turn it, and then they add the local fruits, you know, the local flavors, and, and when you're eating it, it's like you you can taste the fresh mulberry, the fresh strawberry, you know, with, with the almond, you can eat, taste the pieces of almond, um, and so it's like a sweet... Here they have it for breakfast, a granita and a brioche. You go meet a friend and take a brioche, uh, granita and brioche, or there are uh, cars that drive by, you know, trucks. Ice, like we have ice cream trucks. They have those too, but they have granita trucks. So that's out right now. And I got to tell you, um, Alfred promised me he would take me this week. <laughs> we would go because it's more fun to do it with someone else. Uh, to have a, a mulberry melon granita. He likes the almond. I like the almond too, but we can always get that. And the pistachio. We actually did another episode on Yumi and Sicily on granita because there's a big granita festival here in Acerreale in June. Obviously not this year. Okay, there you go. Another episode of Destination Eat Drink in the books with every kind of sugar delivery system you can possibly imagine. Join me next week. I'll be talking to Marika Devon of ClumsyGirlTravels.com. She's got a great personal story to tell, so we'll have her on next week. Until then, head over to DestinationEatDrink.com. My latest blog post is about the wonderfully colorful and annually changing murals of Kaka'ako, Hawaii. That's at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by Mr. Podcast Ed Silla and the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Thank you, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. Wear your effing mask, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.